The content of this podcast should not be considered financial or investment advice. All interviews and discussions are opinions only, and the podcast has been created without taking into consideration the listener's financial objectives, financial situation or needs. Listeners should obtain independent advice before making any financial decision. Hi everyone, welcome to this edition of Stock Doc. I'm your host, Dr. Nigel Finch, and it's my pleasure to be joined from California with Mark Schneider. Mark is President and CEO of Buy Now, Pay Later Marketplace, uh, Zebit. Now Zebit just listed on the ASX under the ticker code ZBT and raised $35 million in a fully underwritten IPO. Mark, welcome to the program and congratulations on the listing on the ASX the other week. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. I appreciate that. Now, Mark, I've read some of the Australian press regarding Zebit, and it seems to me that some folks here in Australia may not really understand the market that you operate in, and more importantly, I guess, appreciate the mission that the company is on. I I say this because some headlines were calling Zebit a subprime lender and drawing you know, parallels with the reckless lending practices associated with the GFC. Now, I want to give you an opportunity to talk to this, but I thought perhaps it would be useful to have a deeper dive into understanding the market you operate in. So if you would allow me, I'd like to reality test my understanding of the US market and try and calibrate that to my understanding of your business model. So this is more an education for me than, than anyone else. I think that's a great idea. I'd love to participate that way. All right. Well, well, look, my first question, I guess, is, is, is pretty straightforward. And that is, Zebit only operates in the US market and the current operating model is built solely for the US market. Is, is that correct? That is correct. So you refer to your customer base as, uh, or your target customers, as underserved customers. Now, I don't want to go into detail just yet about the how and why, but when you say underserved, specifically, who are these customers underserved by? Yeah, so there's two terms, underserved and underbanked. And this is a characteristic that describes a population, a very big population in the United States, that really do not have sufficient access to mainstream financial services. They definitely have bank accounts, but they don't have access. And, and so they don't get uh, the ability to have products, financial products that are typically offered by retail banks. Um, and so they're often deprived of services such as you know, cost-effective credit cards, loans, et cetera. Uh, there's a strong reliance on this population of non-traditional forms of finance or microfinance, uh, which tend to be very predatory. And mm. that tends to be rent-to-own, lease-to-own and the payday lending industry in the United States. So really that word is really to connote the fact that they don't gain the full services that somebody with a uh, solid credit score uh, would be able to access. Well, I think it's difficult for some in Australia to fully appreciate the the magnitude of the problem of being underserved um, because it, it, it impacts such a relatively small number of people here in Australia when compared to America. And and equally, I think few in Australia appreciate the poverty that impacts hundreds of millions of Americans. And like you're saying, the the predatory debt practices that so 
so many people have fallen foul with. You know, I mean, g- given that, it's, it's my opinion that there are some structural differences that make the US consumer and the Australian consumer of credit products so different that they're almost in, you know, in, incomparable. I mean, would you agree with a statement like that from what you understand of the Australian um, credit landscape? I, I would absolutely agree with that statement. Hmm. Well, can you help me join the dots on this? I mean, firstly, let's start with, let's say, the this FICO score, FICO score. What is it and what role does it play in accessing credit for people? So FICO is the mainstream credit score here in the United States. Uh, that's really been operational for the, the past couple of decades. It's really a measure of credit worthiness. And it's a function of a couple things. It's a function of your payment history. So how solid your payment history has been along mainstream financial service uh, products like credit cards or loans. It's a function of utilization or the debt that you have outstanding. It's a function of the length of credit history that you have. So if you're um, a new customer, you wouldn't have tenured history and therefore your score would be much lower. It is also a function of the type of credit you have access to. So whether it's a credit card or a loan or a mortgage versus taking out a payday loan, Hmm. uh, the type of credit and the quality of that product that you get um, also scores either in favor or against you. And then it's really around velocity, the number of inquiries um, that, that a consumer has over time. And so somebody is look poorly from a FICO perspective if you have a number of new credit facilities, whether it's taking out multiple credit cards or loans uh, within a period of time. And all of these factors are weighted and it comes out with a score. And that score is typically what um, every mainstream financial service organization and banks use to underwrite. Mm. And they actually have a scorecard where that is the basis of it without taking into consideration anything else. When you move away from FICO, meaning if you don't have a good FICO score, which is typically FICO goes up to um, about 800, but when you're 620 or below, you're considered underserved, underbanked, or not, or really shut out of mainstream credit. Mm. And then there are, are alternative bureaus that offer different insight into that customer regarding you know do they pay you their utilities etc uh to try to better understand you know what they're spending their money on it's it's such a it's such a binary measure and i think i think the the difficulty is that if you're you know you're having trouble accessing credit and you're applying and you don't have a long credit history then that can basically shut you out and you know, I can see how people get orphaned in this system where, you know, there's this over-reliance on this single measure FICO. You know, in terms of trying to understand the root cause that results in being credit challenged in the US, I mean, I think some of the concepts that, well, some of the issues that I want to raise, particularly around education, are completely foreign to many people in Australia. You know, I, I want to go out on a limb here and say that a good place to start to look at, um, at, at, at as the root cause of this, of being credit challenged, starts with the education in the US, the education system in the US, which, if I'm honest, is um, no no offence intended here against you, Mark, but if I'm honest, the, 
education system in the US is just absolute crap. I mean, can you reality check my understanding of high school level education in Australia? USA ranks 25th in the world in maths, 21 in the world for science. And what may surprise many is that the US trails behind countries like Estonia, Poland, Slovakia, and, and even China in its basic level of education. I've read that in some states in the US, as many as 60% of high school students don't finish high school. They don't even graduate. And, and then the, the consequences for those students, most will earn less in their lifetime, and that I, I can understand that. But it's claimed that they're eight times more likely to go to jail as a result of not having that basic education. Is this really the state of the school education system in America, or am I on the diet of wrong news here? No, I'm a, I'm a product of public school uh, in the United States, and I think you're absolutely right. Um, there's a couple things that are really important, and I'm really glad you're asking these questions. So if you look at any of the statistics, 85% of the U.S. adults have a high school education. Hmm. It doesn't mean they know anything. It just means they've been passed through the system and got a diploma. But when you look at the next level up, the ability of people to then ascertain uh, real education through college, it drops down precipitously. And that's also just a fun, that's a different problem with the cost structure uh, that has increased uh, from 2015, where the average yearly uh, package to go to college here in the U.S. used to be $19,000. And now it's forty to $50,000. But going back to your original question, there's a self-fulfilling prophecy here around education, and it's been going on for 30 or 40 years. There's a couple of factors. There's a lack of funding for public school education and a lack of government subsidies. There's a lack of credential teachers. There's a lack of critical investments in technology. You can see where the world has gone over the last you know, 30 years. If you don't have technology inside the classroom, all of those students are left behind, right? Yeah. They're de-skilled. They're automatically de-skilled mm. for an environment that has moved away from manufacturing in the United States to services. Mm-hmm. We have we have bullying, which is pretty predominant across our public schools, uh, which gets attrition higher and higher. Uh, you have tenured teachers, which is supposed to be to retain teachers, but it also al- doesn't allow school systems to get rid of the mm-hmm. worst teachers. And really what you have is overcrowding and a concept called tracking or funneling. And based on your behavior or your aptitude, inside of uh, the education system, all the way from elementary school, all the way through high school. So your 12 years, you're actually being tracked and funneled based on how well you're doing, what your attitude is in class, and you end up being pulled with other poorly performing students with the worst teachers. Mm -hmm. And so that's the self-fulfilling prophecy. And when you look inside of public schools, especially in cities like New York and you know, San Francisco and, and, and Chicago, et cetera, well over half of the public school students are low income, right? Their mm-hmm. parents are working multiple jobs. They have less resources. Do they get passed? They get passed. Do they have a shot at a financial future? Most do not. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, uh, you know, the, there's some statistics here that are completely woeful and 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 it really a disgrace for the world's largest economy. Twenty one percent of adults in the U.S. are illiterate. So that's 
one in five adults having so little or no education that they're unable to read or write. I mean, in contrast to Australia's literacy rate um, in 2018, which was 99%, so you know, 1% illiteracy. I mean, is this really the case, Mark? 21% of adults in the US? It, it is. We, we have 50 different states. Every state operates almost like a mini country, right? It's totally desegregated relative to the, uh, the standards, et cetera, uh, from an education perspective. But probably unlike Australia, you would have to tell me. I mean, our constructs here in the United States were set up uh, to fail the education system. And let me just give you one example. So our federal um, housing authority was established in 1934. The reason why this is important, even though we're in 2020, it was created to segregate African-Americans from Caucasians. Mm -hmm. In fact, uh, it became part of America's fabric, which basically did this. If you lived near an African-American community, nobody would insure your house. So how did we get to a population where you have a concentration of minorities all in inner city and Caucasians or white people sitting out in the suburbs? Because the financial products that were being given, basically this is called redlining. It would put a line around a, a minority community and say, if you live near this community, you will never get insurance for your house. So Caucasian people left and they went to the suburbs. Yeah. But the effect of this, the echo, even though this was outlawed during 1968 and we had our civil rights, you know, we're not, we're not a very old country here. I mean, you know, we had civil rights in the in, in the 60s. We had uh, to, to, to really try to get women to be able to vote. And we have a great disparity in the level of wages that are made by uh, Caucasian versus minor, uh, minority ethnicities here in the United States, as well as uh uh, women discrimination in terms of, but the key point here is, is your educational funding is based on property taxes. Mm -hmm. Well, what happens when all of the property mm -hmm. inside the inner city mm -hmm. is low income? They don't generate property taxes and therefore they can't fund education. And so it's a self-fulfilling prophecy around the money coming in, the attraction of talent and technology, and it, it doesn't change. And that's really the root, the, the echoes of that first policy to segregate people uh, really has continued to be um, the foundation of our educational system. And everybody's tried to fix it. You just can't fix it with, with money. You actually, there's been, there's charter schools, there's private schools, et cetera, which actually draw more and more uh, children out of public school, which even makes it even worse. Mm. Um you would have to tear down our educational system yeah. and rebuild it from the ground up. It it, it almost is not fixable depending yeah. on what state you're in. Yeah, and, and that's why I, I think it's just crap, you know. But, you know, so so that's a root cause. And then one of the downstream effects of that is this, and, and again, in stark contrast to what we have here in Australia, is 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 poverty. You know, there's 13% there's of the U.S. population um living in poverty, that's around 40 million people. I mean, is, is, that, is that really the case? Uh, it's definitely the case. I was one of those people when I was growing up, uh, yeah. taking government subsidies, taking food stamps, taking government cheese, uh, you know, uh, being uh, homeless and having to, 
uh, to live in government housing. So I, it's real. And, you know, I'm turning 51. It hasn't changed uh, since I was a teenager. But let's look at the structure of wealth in the United States. And you can help me compare and contrast with Australia. Mm. The, the top 1% in the U.S. own around 78 to 80% of the stock market, right? Mm. If you go down to the top 10%, it's about 89%. So you can see that top 1% mm. really owns the majority. And even the 9% after that, is only another sort of eight or nine percent. So you know the the top ten percent sort of their average income is nine times the bottom ninety percent. So here in the U.S., there's two factors that work against you, right? Income and your credit score. Now, income, I also think that while some people like myself who have, I would say, overachieved, broke the cycle, right, mm -hmm. of poverty, broke the cycle of of not of wanting to get out of the public school system and 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 do and and I had the ability to do that just because I never quit. Most people don't. But your education affects your ability to get a job. If you look at wages here, really if you look at wages over the last 20 years, the CEO pay, white collar pay continues to increase. Mm -hmm. Right? Our minimum federal minimum wage has gone up a little bit, but we're still struggling to even get $15 an hour in mm. some states, right? There's a fight for that $15 an hour. Remember, we don't have free healthcare, okay? <laughs> we don't have other government safety nets. Mm. So if you're earning $15, even if you get $15 an hour, we're in California, that, that is the minimum wage, but in other states, it's still, it's still $8, $10, $12 an hour. You can't fundamentally not make a living with one job. If you look at tip workers, meaning restaurant workers, there has been zero increase in their wage in 29 years mm. right and so you have this you have this education influences opportunity education influences income education influences the volatility of what your life is likely going to be now look uh, i i believe in personal accountability and so some people have opportunity they just screw it up but mm. the majority of people never have a chance to elevate themselves and then certainly when they encounter the need to gain financing and they're offered products that are structured to fail structured to be you know create you know 66 billion dollars of interest fees and penalties every year how are you supposed to break out of that mm. you can't no and and it could be it could be misfortune i mean without so Correct. so in australia we haven't had wages growth that you know we can really point to but the thing is we do have all the social safety nets here including you know, medical cover. I mean, the, the thing is, you have an accident in the US you, and, you, you know, you're a health issue and you, you go to hospital. I mean, you could be up for $100,000. Um, and then and what you want to a, a finance company to pay to pay for that. I mean, and, and that's, you know, you, you'd never you'd never break free. You know, the it's, um, yeah, it, it's it's frightening. I, I also read that... Um, in the the Fed, the Federal Reserve conducted a survey in 2013. So this is a little dated, and I, I want to get your, um, your your view on this. But it really looked at financial fragility so of U.S. consumers, and it found through this survey that 47% of households live paycheck to paycheck. And when asked how they would pay for a $400 emergency, the only option that they had was to sell something or borrow from a you know predatory lending so that's about 180 million people have 
no savings and no access to emergency funding. I mean, is that still the case today or is it worse with COVID or what's your sense on that? So the the new data, 2019 data, it's worse. 78% of the population lives paycheck to paycheck. 78. So things have not gotten better. Mm. Uh, You have about 40% of the population that can't handle that $400 shock. So if your tires go out, if your water heater goes out, if your air Mm. conditioner breaks, if your refrigerator goes out, you're you're just, we're not a saving country, right? We don't have disposable income for the masses that are saying, we're not Japan, right? Where people actually have discipline around savings, they can invest. We don't have superannuation, right? Mm. So we have 401ks. But you have to be able to afford to be able to set aside money. When you're barely even making minimum wage, how can you participate? And then we have the other result of it is how do you take advantage of the compounding effect, Hmm. right, of investment? If if you're barely making a living, you can't invest. You can't get a compound effect. You can't get an employer match in our 401k, okay? Hmm. And so, therefore, you're always falling behind and you're always susceptible to anything that causes financial shock. And that could be exactly what you said. A child falls ill, you mm. fall ill. And then when you don't make your payments, guess what happens? You go to collections and your FICO score goes down. Yeah, yeah. And I guess, you know, for, for a lot of Australians who don't have savings, I guess there's a security blanket there in the sense that there's a financial product like a credit card or something that sits, sits in their wallet. But 50% of Americans don't have or don't qualify for a credit card as well. That is true. We do have a concept of a um, what we call a subprime credit card. Mm. Companies like Capital One, et cetera, have put those out. Now, those aren't really credit cards in the way in which you think about it. So, for example, to get $300 of what I call open to buy or a credit limit, you actually have to pay around $168 of fees. Mm. So you're, you're, you're actually putting down about uh, uh, half of that in a deposit, and the other half is an account annual account fee. So for somebody who is not uh, in the mainstream financial you know, product segment, mm-hmm. they're actually trying to buy $150 of open to buy by paying $168. Bucks. Mm. It, it's kind of crazy, right? So mm-hmm. you're right. Uh, the ability to float and float what I would say in a cost effective way. So at zero, you know, so we have zero to 36% capped uh, uh, annual percentage rate uh, in the United States. Um, but yeah. you get around the APR by charging fees and penalties. And so credit card companies like subprime credit card companies yeah. will offer a card where you have a little bit of open to buy. They get to declare the 36%, but all the fees that I just talked to you about, the annual account fee, the late fees that happen, et cetera, those aren't calculated in the, in the APR. So mm. it's a scheme to get around to be able to charge you know, 50 to 100% APR on a, on a customer, whereas people like you and me really have probably phenomenal rates right, in terms of being able to get a credit card at a decent APR and not have to have all that nonsense around it. Yeah, yeah. Well, look, I mean, there's been so many innovations in financial products, but so few of these innovations have really been universally applied, um, you know, across the United States. And I guess it's because of many of these, you know, the alarmingly high rate of households that are unbanked or, or, or underbanked and many of these concepts you've talked on. 
But I mean, one one innovation that we've seen being introduced in the US is the buy now, pay later, you know, allowing customers to take the goods and pay over, you know, four weekly or fortnightly instalments. But it would seem to me that many credit challenge consumers may not even be able to access buy now, pay later. And, and even those that can, I don't even know that they could service it. I mean, what, what's your take on the, on the, on the buy now, pay later uh, concept across like the vast majority of Americans? You know, I, I think it's a great, I think it's a great concept first. Uh, and I was actually looking into doing it about 10 years ago. There's uh, a four payment model here in the United States that doesn't count the down payment at checkout. So typically uh, BNPL players will take 25% and then schedule the next four payments either over four to six weeks. And they do what's called a soft credit check. So they're not pulling your FICO to where it affects your FICO. Remember I told you that one of the one of the criteria that hurts your, your FICO score is velocity. Hmm. So FICO has come up with two concepts now. A hard pull, which actually is pulling all of the data, right? All of the data down. And a soft pull, which basically your, your score is known, right? And there's score thresholds. So a lot of these companies are using soft pulls. So first of all, a soft pull for a credit challenge person, they're not going to meet the cutoff. And even if they do meet the, even if somebody is trying to go downstream to a 640 or 620 or below 600, what they're going to get is, is such a small line that it's immaterial, a $100 line or a $120 line. Hmm. Uh, so it's not that, it's not that meaningful. And, and so most of credit challenge people or the 120 million people we've talked about are shut out from that because um, they're pre-screened through that soft pull and the amount of money that they would get is not material and the amount of time that they have to pay it back doesn't work. If you have 78% of the population living paycheck to paycheck and a lot of the population working multiple jobs, how is it that they're going to make a two, three, four hundred $400 purchase and finance 75% of the, that and pay it off in a month? Mm. It's impossible for most people to do. And, and that's why, you know, when we thought about our product term was really important because this is all about structuring payments that people can afford at a price point they can afford. Hmm. Yeah. And that's, and that's precisely the problem that, that Zebit is tackling, right? So, you know, this, this is a, this is a really frightening topic and, and, but I think it's important to understand because it gives us some context here that's, that I think is so difficult to comprehend for many of us here in Australia. Um, so do, what, what's the social mission of Zebit? Let, let's start, start with that. Yeah, the reason I built this company was a, was a couplefold. I didn't want to leave my career in just building businesses and buying them out of bankruptcy and turning them around. Uh, that did, just didn't feel right to me given the way the way I grew up. Uh, and the things that I've overcome uh, and been fortunate enough to overcome. And so I've always wanted to tackle a major social problem uh, in my life. And this is a huge one, right? Mm. This is a social problem where most operators Mm. would run for the hills because they don't know how to solve it. And that's pretty much why there's been limited innovation in this space. But Zebit's mission is basically to disintermediate or get rid of all of the predatory alternatives Hmm. that exist in financial services that are given to these customers that basically 
uh, cause an unpenetrable cycle of debt. That is the mission. There is a big enough marketplace here to get rid of all of these alternatives so nobody needs to use them again, okay? And set, you know, really level set the credit playing field and the methodology by which a credit challenged or underserved customer gets allocated credit, which is not based on a unit dimensional factor, which is a FICO score. Yeah. So in order to do that, we've obviously had to build our own data. Yeah, and it's and it's like you have the potential here to be a circuit breaker to a problem that is intergenerational. I mean, this is a problem that sticks with families and and goes goes on for generation to generation. So, you know, I, I'm 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 very taken by what you're trying to do here with uh, with with Zebit. Um, Help us just briefly understand how you're different to the other buy now, pay later companies and e-commerce companies in this space. Sure. So the buy now, pay later group, they're using a four payment, what I call an unregulated model. It doesn't mean they don't need a license in certain states right. as you, you have seen. Yeah. But basically, they don't spend money on customer acquisition. They spend money on merchant acquisition. Yeah. They get 2 to 3% of the total transaction value. Um not the full gross margin of the the product. And they sit in some other e-tailer's cart. And now what you can see is the trend to digitize the payments so that somebody could take an afterpay or an affirm to a physical shop and also do buy now, pay later with a tap of the phone. Now, Zebit is very different. And and by the way, the credit quality that they, they tend to focus on tends to be on a FICO basis, 640 yeah. and above. Yeah. Now, Zebit is an e-commerce company. We are not a sort of a payment processor. Yeah. Uh, and we're the only e-commerce company in the United States that actually has their own in-house buy now, pay later solution. And so we are trying to be a one-stop shop uh, to the credit challenge consumer to consolidate their purchases. Now, we're the merchant. We make the full gross margin, which is about 27 to 28% versus the 2 to 3% of commission. We own this customer in terms of as long as we continue to service them, they will consolidate their their share of purchase with us. And they're, because their next best alternative is horrible, I'm not sure what the level of differentiation really is going to be on the buy now, pay later space. Everybody seems to be replicating each other's models, uh, but they obviously there's a there's a there's a market there. But I also look at our market as being vastly bigger, not only here in the United States but also the model is applicable uh, to parts of Europe, especially the UK, Latin America, as well as Asia. Hmm. Um, but fundamentally, you know, we have a different approach and we're, we, we are regulated in 50 states. It's very light compliance because, because we're the merchant, we're extending store credit to give the opportunity. Yeah. Now, I think that the key differentiation is we have found the signal by which to understand which of the of the credit challenge consumers should we actually give credit to it's not like we can we can give credit to everybody but that's really what our delineation is versus like i said using a soft pull and a cutoff score and then just allocating credit from there yeah so what's your experience in risk assessment and risk modeling and 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 how experienced at um well, I guess data science is your team at Zebit. Yeah, so I think we we build or we bring a wealth of of experience. Before 
uh, I founded Zebit. I was actually the head of operations or chief operating officer at, at a company called Game Credit, which used to be Global Analytics. They uh, have brands such as LendingStream in the UK. So I ran a hundred million dollar portfolio running all lending operations, and 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 LendingStream really uses best of class uh, data science um, and modeling to really understand how to allocate funds to a, a credit challenge consumer, but they're, they're a lender, they're a loan provider. So I've been doing at least on the lending side to understand how decision science, you know, mm-hmm. plays into allocation of credit, you know, for the last 10 years. And then before that, I obviously have, you know, 15 years of e-commerce experience. Now, I don't lead data science for our organization. I built the company. I, you know, I run all the operations as well as being the CEO. But Eric Von Dolan has 30 years of uh, underserved credit experience. Uh, he brings with he used to be the chief analytics officer at Elevate, which is a public company in the United States, uh, and he has everything from you know data bureau experience to insurance experience and other financial products. And he has really surrounded himself with a, a world-class team that understands advanced predictive machine learning models of how to harness the data and associate it with transaction risk. Um, and he's, you know, at the end of the day, it's the techniques and also understanding the business drivers uh, that makes his team so powerful in understanding, you know, the risk of not just who we're bringing in the door. But that next order that's shipping from our platform, should we take that order or should we not take that order? And that's mm-hmm. really where our competitive advantage has been. We brought him in in, in 2019 mm-hmm. to basically harness 50 plus million dollars worth of investment in building our own internal data to supplement with what we pull from uh, uh, from other data providers outside um, that really give us a, probably the most granular look at a credit challenge customer because of the velocity, meaning the repeat purchase, the coming back, shopping with us for, you know, just not one time, but, but over years, uh, he's really harnessed a a data set that, that I think is nobody else has in terms of being able to understand the risk of this customer. Yeah. And, you know, I want to, I want to keep talking to you about this, uh, about this issue, but sadly we're, we're a bit compressed with time. But, you know, there's a massive market opportunity out there. You guys have got experience in understanding how to assess risk in this. And, and really, you're building a profit with a, a business with a, a good sort of social, with a social good, but also, you know, with some financial stability in it. Your September quarter results are out. Revenue was 15 million US dollars for the quarter. That's, that's, that's amazing. And positive EBITDA. So how was that tracking to your prospectus numbers? And, and, and also, how are your results impacted by any seasonality as well? Yeah. Um, so because the prospectus is not divided into quarters, I can't comment on the first part of that question. But we had strong results for Q3. Hmm. Uh, we had record gross margin uh, at over 28%. And we had credit losses sitting in you know, the 6 percentage range. And that really almost doubled what the prospectus has in terms of a forecast for contribution margin, right? And contribution margin is, a, is an important metric that gets us to profitability over time. 
And so I think that being EBITDA positive should reflect a couple of things for investors. Um, one, yes, uh, that is a byproduct of me being able to shape the demand on our platform through COVID. Now, yeah. as we articulated in the prospectus, um, I was optimizing for cash in order to get to this IPO. And now that we have the IPO, I don't have to constrain demand. But what it shows is a strong base of repeat customers who are tenured produce a profitable result. Mm -hmm. And when we get this business to scale, um, I have confidence as a management, you know, quote unquote, aspiration, uh, but as an operator that by 2022, we are going to be full year profitable and generating substantive cash. Now, your second question, Q4 is the most important part of our year. We're on a calendar year. That is our fiscal year. Mm -hmm. um, while we're strong generating revenue all year round, Q4 could be anywhere from three to five times what a normal quarter would be because yeah. it's obviously a natural buying right uh, uh, event for people. And so we target higher acquisition um, uh, for Q4. And it has typically, you know, been a substantive part of, of our calendar year. And the reason we wrote the Q3 trading in that way in which we did was say, look, we did fine on, on Q3. Actually, it's the first time in history we've been EBITDA positive. But let us execute on Q4. Uh, and we have, you know, 48 months of executing against our forecast where we've yet to miss one. And yeah. so, you know, past is not always indicative of the future. Uh, but we have very strong operating DNA here, and and that's what we're focused on doing over the next you know two months. Well, Mark Schneider, we're out of time, but thank you so much for this opportunity to start to unpack the uh, the the market that you guys are operating in. I, I wish you all the very best with, uh, with with the listing here in Australia and um, and the next uh, the next quarter's results as they come through. Thank you very much to my guest. Mark Schneider for joining us for this edition of Stock Doc. It's been a pleasure. Thank you, Nigel. Have a great one. Okay, thanks a lot. Bye.